CinemaSins has a fan club. It's called The Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. It's a, that's an excellent question, and I can assure you that I've had my ego crushed decades ago. Oh, um. <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. Welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins. Hello, hello. And Barrett Share. Hey! And today we have a very special guest. It is writer Tim Long. Hi! Uh, his Hello! Hello! <laughs> his, uh, his movie, The Exchange, uh, comes out in theaters, VOD, and digital on July 30th. Uh, mm-hmm. Tim, welcome! Um, hello, how are you? Good to, uh, <laughs> so good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So you wrote a movie called The Exchange that okay. has a character named Tim Long. In it. I know it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, it's really <laughs> strange. <laughs> really strange. Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if I were to say, like, well, this wasn't originally my project, and another screenwriter started it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he died. <laughs> and they went to look for someone else to write the second draft, and when they thought, well, we know this name, maybe it'll work. No, I wrote, <laughs> I, I wrote it uh, based a very, very ba- loosely based on my experience as a teenager, as a teenage nerd idiot um, in a small town in Canada, getting an exchange student. And I thought, well, it's sort of based on me, and I know my own name, and I'll remember it. Why don't I just name it after me? Mm-hmm. I, I, I've de- I have deeply rued that decision occasionally. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, what are you going to do? No, look, yeah. no looking back. How, how close uh, would you say ed oxenbold comes to being tim long uh, well he is about 40 percent more charming and six <laughs> percent less insufferable than i was as a teenager yeah um, he's really crazily good i mean there's a million things i love about this movie that have nothing to do with any of my work but i love he's so great and i love avon hogia as the french exchange student and the two oh, of them together yeah. have such fun chemistry um so uh yeah i gotta salute ed's performance yeah um and, I, and sorry go ahead. go ahead no i was just go gonna ahead. say and justin hartley um i i had no idea that guy was funny big comedy chops right and yeah mm-hmm. crazy mustache and he really brings it you know um, yeah he was a hundred percent game and there were some there were some big comedy people like jennifer Irwin, who mm-hmm. plays yeah. the mother who plays Tim Long's mother, um, who you've probably seen in a million different sitcoms. Who's hel- She's been in Schitt's Creek. She's been in mm-hmm. Superstore. She's big league funny. Um, and she's great. And this guy, Paul Bronstein, who's a great actor, mostly based in Toronto, and uh, Melanie Leishman. The, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 this is a, a, a perfect time to talk about the cast because the cast is great. And I was wondering, let's comment on all of them, obviously, but I was wondering who you thought was the perfect casting, like this person who, who was, who was in your head when you were writing this, you know, I didn't know who Ed Oxenbold was when I was writing the script and that that's on me, but I didn't. Um, but he turned out to be amazing. And the same thing with like, with Avon, like I didn't, you know, pretty much down the line, I didn't know much. I didn't have a huge role in the casting process. And I just like to say, I'm so glad I didn't because Mm. (laughs) it it was mostly these two guys. It was Dan Hine, who was one of the primary producers and Dan Mazur, uh, of Borat fame who ended up directing the thing. And they just made smart choice after smart choice. Like I, I just felt like I remember seeing a few of the auditions and being like, 
I don't know. Like, I don't really feel like this is my wheelhouse. So I was really happy to let them take over. And, uh, and I think that they did a great job. And how about Jaylee Wolf? Oh, I love her. She's I, so I, I, good. And you know, the thing, the funny thing is that she's such a convincing nerd. And then mm-hmm. you see her in real life or, or, you know, she's a pretty prominent musician now and she's just the most glamorous looking person in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she's so funny as a, as a little nerd. Um, and it's just, it's, uh, she's a constant delight. When I was looking, I, I was actually look trying to look her up because the, you know, I was like, who is this? I feel like I've seen her before or whatever. And I scrolled right past her uh, on the <laughs> right. IMDb because I was looking for like somebody with glasses. I know. Or something like that. Really funny. I mean, it's, uh, it's, she is, she has such comedic chops, but in, you know, she's so in, in quote unquote real life, she's so fierce and she has a million different talents and she's just like nothing like her character. Um, but she just killed it. Is it, is it difficult to sort of shift gears from a show like the Simpsons to write uh, sort of a coming of age comedy drama like this? Well, it's, di- I mean, it is different in the sense that there's no drawing involved. Right. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. and you're, you're sort of, I mean, it's, there's a, the Simpsons is, you know, beyond my dream job. I'm so glad I, I worked there, but at the same time you are playing in someone else's sandbox. Like mm-hmm. you know, these characters, I, I showed up for season, I guess it was 10. And you know, these characters were very firmly established in the American movie. And, and it was, it's fun to get to write for them, but it was also a new kind of terrifying experience to have this whole new situation that was invented by me largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was different. And, you know, like the tone is different, you know, like obviously a 22 minute animated show is going to be different from a 93 minute live action movie that obviously is a comedy, but we were, we were at least aiming to give it a certain air of realism. So yeah, you just kind of, they're different beasts. It's like, it's like, um, you know, creating a different dish in the kitchen. You still, you know, you're still drawing on a, a lot of the same cooking skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why I use that analogy because I can't cook at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. I was but, I was going to ask you about because you've you've written for uh, the Letterman Show and written obviously for The Simpsons. You've written this um, when you when you start to write for a different voice. Obviously, somebody like <clears throat> Letterman is very different from you know looks like early in your career, Bill Maher. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or certainly, you know, Homer Simpson. How do you get in that mindset? Like, how do you, is it, is it natural, especially after all these years on the Simpsons or does it take a while to really grease the wheels and, and kind of get in that mindset of that character? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've, I, throughout my career, I've worked for a number of different people. I worked for Bill Maher. I worked for Dave. And even while I've been at The Simpsons for low these many years, I've worked on a lot of other things. I've written pilots. I've had a couple pieces published in The New Yorker. Um, there's occasionally you just I, I think I specifically and the writers of The Simpsons in general were pretty adaptable. Mm-hmm. I like to think. And so you just know that, you know, you have to adopt a different voice for every assignment. And every every project has its own kind of unique point of view that you just have to swimming but yeah it's a little bit of an adjustment sure um the uh there's a so uh, there's a sort of a kind of i don't know if it's it's not a subtext it's definitely in the text of this but uh, the movie alludes to small businesses going under in this period of time (laughs) which is like in the mid 80s 
Um, and, and someone <laughs> randomly says something to the, it's the father that says, uh, you know, can any government made a couple of bad decisions that led to this and whatever, and they yeah. cut him off or whatever. But, uh, is, is, was that, was that based on real life? Is that, uh, is that, uh, what, what led to that in 1980s <laughs> Canada? Oh, that's so funny. Now you guys aren't Canadian yourselves, are they? No. Mm-hmm. Are we, don't we sound Canadian? I know. Like, you sound you're pleasant and friendly and funny. So We're from the South. We're from Nashville. So obviously. Well, you're from Nashville. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. You, yep. You've had more Stanley Cup titles than Canada has in the last decade. Just to say one? No, zero. Um, but man, the, man, thank we, you for twisting the knife. Oh, I'm yeah, so we, sorry. We painfully, well, much painfully lost game, to the Penguins. That. Yeah, we oh, painfully right. lost to the Penguins in 2017. Sorry. And I was there to witness it, too. And there oh, it was, too. Gosh. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to twist the knife. Um, what, was, what was the question again? I can't remember. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's well, fine. The thing about, oh, the thing about when he says, no, that was completely randomly made up. Um, mm, okay. I will say, however, that one of the most sheep, one of the, as I said, this is not, this is only loosely based on real events. And um, one thing that I'm sort of sheepish about is that character of Paul Bronstein, because mm-hmm. he, like my father in real life, my father was the co-owner of a tractor dealership, but mm-hmm. there's two huge differences. One is that my father sold John Deere tractors and not Matthew Ferguson tractors. And the other one is that my father was very successful. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like I felt, I, I felt almost worse about presenting the dad as unsuccessful than I did about <laughs> showing my parents marriage breaking up which which it did not they were right. married um so those are those are just two of many examples of things that <laughs> where i deviated from reality it's crazy i i watched this movie and i'm like well he named his character tim long it's got to be like close to what happened and everything and it's no, not uh, really i just i felt like I, i've told people back in for one thing the town in the movie is called hobart and my town was called exeter Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, cause I wanted, I, I wanted to make it very clear. I think people back in Exeter, the real town are excited about this movie, but they're maybe a little apprehensive. Like who is he making fun of? Who's based on who? And mm-hmm. the thing I want to make really clear is that there's only one person who needs to feel embarrassed by this movie. And it's me. Oh, like, okay. All the dorky <laughs> you behavior hear that Exeter? long character is, got that? is real. Everyone else is like a, a loving composite, uh, and, and just sort of like loosely based on my own experience. Did yeah. you have a McDonald's? No, that's another thing. <laughs> when we grew up, you know what? When I, growing up in Exeter, we were it was a great town. Wouldn't have wanted to grow up anywhere else, but it drove me crazy. We had to drive an hour to get to McDonald's. Oh my god! Which is in there. Here's what was an exciting. I rem, I have my fondest memory growing up was like getting out of high school and taking my mother's car and driving to the nearby city of London, Ontario. It took like over an hour to get there. Going to see my podiatrist. Mm. to get or new orthotic speed and then maybe going to see a movie because that there were also no movie theaters in our mm-hmm. town and then hitting up mcdonald's on the way home and that was like that was a that was a red letter evening that sounds me. delightful especially it's the uh, the uh, podiatrist he <laughs> was a good dude he was a good dude yeah, yeah I, had, I had really bad uh pigeon toes and i still do a little bit but he he helped a lot yeah I'm never going to be an Olympic sprinter. You know, your your growing up actually sounds a little bit like mine, except for the fact that we had McDonald's everywhere. Because right, because we're in the United States, so they weren't quite so thick on the ground. Um, But but (laughs) what pisses me off is that soon after I left, uh, McDonald's in fact did come to town. 
So no. like, I think two years later, I, I last time I went through Exeter, I just went there. I was like, this is amazing. And I'm also furious. Can I tell you, <laughs> uh, and this is a weird thing, Tim. I just I pulled it up on Google Maps, Exeter, just to see how far out this thing is. The only thing it, sa- it says on here is the Ironwood Golf Club and yep. the McDonald's. Ah. <laughs> it's literally, it's on the intersection of Highway 4 and 83. Yeah, Highway 4 and 83, and that's very close to um, Huron Tractor, which is yes. what, where my yeah. dad's, yeah, of course. Uh, that was my dad's that. tractor dealership before he sold his share. Um, <laughs> and also another thing that this that this has in common is that uh, Hobart in the town has white squirrels and so did Exeter. Oh, oh nice. wow. Nice. Yeah. That was a nice, that's a nice little dance of the white squirrel at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's always something I've always alluded to because uh, um, nobody can believe it. The town, <laughs> they don't do so much do it anymore, but the town used to really base its its identity around the white squirrels. And we had one living in our front lawn when I grew up, so I, I didn't even think it was anything special. You, you said that uh, you you did do this sort of uh, foreign exchange uh, thing when you were a kid. Um, uh, did how how was that person? That this person obviously was probably not a Stefan. He was, uh, you know, he was, uh, there were only a couple of things that he had in common with this guy. One of which was that he was very, very handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was beloved. Well, first of all, he was just different in so much as he was, had, he was much smoother than me. Right. Uh, had many more social graces. Um, he was the same, you know, it's a funny thing that I remember we were both 16 or 17. And there's a funny thing about a guy, a boy or a man when you're, when you're 16 and male, you're either a boy or or you're a man. And <laughs> I think at 16, I was a boy and mm. this guy was a man. Um, <laughs> so that was noteworthy. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, he was just a really sweet guy who put up with my nonsense. So um, mm. can't, I, you know, I have nothing but fond memories. Did you guys become like uh, pretty good friends? Do you still keep in touch? We haven't kept in touch for a long time, um, but we did get along really well. It's just after I got over the sense of like, this is not going to be a French Tim Long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, it, it's it's I, I love also the contrast you have between Stefan and the other exchange student that comes in in the airport. Uh, right. That, we, in the script, he's actually referred to as French Tim. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> uh, so, do you have a, a process uh, in any way like that? I'm going to get the real boring stuff of writing here, but. Um, uh, do you have sort of a process? Did you, do you have a, a, a way that you, you felt like these characters should uh, live and breathe? Do you have a, you know, do you have a special room that you go to, to write? Do you have to go to a, you know, do you have to go on vacation? What do you got What do you do to write a movie like this? Well, I think that this, this movie was born because I did a, there was an event, I want to say in 2016, where it was an event for charity where various writers told stories. Mm-hmm. Um, about their experience growing up or on a certain theme. It might have been about immigrants. I can't remember. But mm-hmm. it was just a charity event where – so I ended up writing a um, a little story about my exchange student. It was sort of like one of those – I don't know if you know about the moth, those storytelling events mm-hmm. or yes. This American Life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, yeah, just, I yeah. just told the story about my experience with this guy and how he really you know upended my expectations and how he was not what I expected, but I ended up learning so much from him. And – uh, after, and it got a pretty good reception. And one of my agents, this wonderful woman named Nan Blanchard, said, you know, we could turn that into something. Because mm-hmm. agents are always trying to monetize, right? It's like, you just yeah. did it for free. Let's get the money for it. <laughs> yeah. So 
they she I you know she asked me to send her a, a hard copy of the story and I did and she sent it to a producer this guy named Dan Hine whom I'd worked with before uh, who, who was based in England and he said yeah there's something here and we just t- started talking and emailing back and forth and before you know it we had a little treatment and uh, then he came over and we pitched it around town to various sort of indie movie producers and financiers and some in this company called LAMF Bit. Mm. And then I just kept writing draft after draft after draft after draft after draft, <laughs> which is what you do when you're yeah. a screenwriter. And then, and I just thought, well, I'm going to be writing drafts of this thing for the rest of my life. But then yeah. at some point they said, oh, well, this isn't terrible. Let's maybe look for a director. And then Dan Mazur read it and God bless him. He said, this is something I want to do. And then nice. after that, it was a relatively short process to, um, to get the thing made. Hey, can I ask you, this is fascinating to me because at what point I keep hearing this, that people is draft and draft and draft and draft and rewrite and rewrite. And then somebody else has to come in to rewrite. At uh-huh. what point, at what point and who says, is it the producer that says, okay, we're good. Or, or like, no, I think you find people, that- it's the people with the money ultimately, because they're oh, the ones okay. who are going to like, that's a big decision when you decide we're going to produce this thing. And it, um, and you know, that sets in motion a whole process that even with a small movie like this one is going to cost millions of dollars and involve hiring dozens of people. Um, but something has to click in the somebody script. Somebody has to finally. get to a point where it's like, okay, it's time for us to start hiring actors and it's time okay. for us to start hiring crew. So, and you know, it, it is true that like it's really hard to write a movie. And so, Often it does take a bunch of drafts just to get it right because, you know, the, all these moving parts and things that are referred to in the first 10 pages pay off in the last 80 pages or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not a coincidence that these things take so long. I mean, plus, you know, there's often a problem with movies because there's so many cooks in the kitchen. There's yeah. Executives and there's producers and so many people who want to weigh in. So that can slow things down. But, um, yeah, just like. I don't know. I, I guess it's just part of the process. I mean, even in television, even in The Simpsons, we write dozens of drafts of these shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even when we put them on TV, they're not always perfect. I don't know if you noticed, but they're not always perfect. <laughs> I, I have not noticed. I have not yeah. noticed this. Ever. So, uh, you know, it just takes a, a lot of work, to, especially with comedy. Like, I'm biased because I've been writing comedy my entire career. But, like, with drama, you have to tell a compelling story that makes sense. With comedy, you have to tell a compelling story that makes sense and is funny. Yeah. So you that's have a to, whole other responsibility. For, for all those cooks in the kitchen, now, of course, you're in a writer's room or, or with other writers with the, the television. But when it comes to movies and you've got the executives and, and the director and, and, and all the other people, do you have to check your ego at the door and just kind of say, like, okay, th- this is going to be kind of my story, but there's going to oh, be a little hands I, I my, all over. I had my- it's a, that's an excellent question, and I can assure you that I've had my ego crushed decades ago. Oh, um, <laughs> you know, even, even at Letterman, like you know, it's these things are collective enterprises. So you know, at The Simpsons, for example, I'd write a story, and even I wrote a couple stories very early in my Simpsons career that were largely based on things that happened to me. There was an episode called uh, "Skinner's Sense of Snow" about yeah. uh, Bart, Bart and Lisa being trapped in the school by a blizzard, and it was mm-hmm. kind of based on my experience and and. I thought, well, this is my experience. No one's going to mess with this. They messed with it so much. Uh, like, I don't yeah. think, and this is a very common experience. Like you write a script and maybe five lines are left. Oh, and wow. I mean, most likely, you know, if you did a good job, the structure stays the same. And that's by far the most important part. Cause you know, you can write funny lines all day long. It's just, the story has to hold water and you know, the architecture of it has to be right. 
So I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, I write scripts and then I get notes and the notes are brutal. It's like, this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't work, this doesn't work. This part's okay, but this part sucks. And I, I have to say, I used, I'm not the thickest skinned person in the world. I used to, it, I used to really hate it. Mm-hmm. Not now. I'm like, whatever. I mean, I'll disagree sometimes if I, if I don't think they're right, but generally I'll just be like, fine. Yep. Sure. I'll change that. Whatever. And so by the time we got to the exchange, I was like, yep. I'll, I, I knew I'd be getting notes from a million people. Um, I'm just grateful that it, that it was such a small enterprise. Like we weren't a major studio movie. It was mm-hmm. Mazer, the director, Dan Hine, um, this guy, Jeffrey Soros, who ran LAMF, the financier, uh, Simon Horseman, a few like this really smart lady named Madalena, who was one of the British producers, a few others. And they would give notes. And generally I'd be like, Thanks. That's a good idea. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Is there, it's actually got, brings up a, a question that I, I, I wrote down uh, early on. Uh, is there a scene you wrote that really want, that you really wanted, but it got cut in this movie? Oh, that's fun. You know, most of the scenes, I think we're kind of circling back to the something you brought up at the beginning, which is why did I name the character Tim Long? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons I kept it is that it, because it meant I would retain a certain amount of power. Right. Um, I think it meant that like, well, I know this character better than you because this character is me. It didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't always work. People were very happy. I had people say to me, Tim Long wouldn't do that. Which is surprising. Uh, that's me. fantastic. That's me. That's, but we also, I also understood that they weren't talking about me. They were talking about Tim Long, the character, and that I had right. to take that into account. So having said that, no, I don't think so. Although I have to say there was a draft at one point, and this really exhibits my naivete about live action filmmaking. There was a very exciting snowmobile chase across a frozen lake with mm. about 12 characters on snowmobiles. And I think a couple of them broke through the ice and, and went down and had to be hauled back up out of the ice. Oh. And I think that scene alone would have taken about a week and cost $3 million. Yeah. And I and somebody at some point said, how about a parade? <laughs> and I, oh, okay that makes sense so if you know with the simpsons obviously you know action sequencers are difficult but you can you know we send the simpsons into space twice a year and we never we don't right. think anything of it but it's a little <laughs> more challenging it's a little more challenging with a movie like this it's uh it's funny uh, if you if you uh wonder that you're in um uh you know if you wonder if you're if we wonder if we're in a simulation or not i did go back to look at the first episode that you're credited on, which is the Simpsons Bible stories. And oh, right. Sure. Um, the chalkboard gag uh, in that episode is I cannot absolve sins, um, <laughs> which nice. is uh, a perfect, you know, uh, you know, synergy of uh, cinema sins and the Simpsons, which is what we planned all along. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Finally great. converged. <laughs> That's <sin>. right. Oh. <laughs> At this point, you've are you've done uh, you know politically incorrect, and you've done uh, Dave Letterman and and everything. Uh, what did it still feel like? Uh, you've already sort of alluded to this, but how did that feel going on to the Simpsons writing team? Oh my god, I totally loved it. I mean, I had been a fan. I very distinctly remember watching the first episode, which was this Christmas episode uh, in at my parents' house coming home from like my freshman year of college, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And, just looking, and I'd always, you know, I grew up with the Flintstones and I grew up with, you know, the peanut special. So I, you know, I always loved animation, but I remember watching it and thinking, well, this is great. 
Mm. Um, and I thought it was so funny and so clever and so fast. I mean, you right. watch that episode now, it seems slow compared to what gets on oh, TV yeah. now. At the time, it just seemed like head spinning. Um, and of yeah. course, I've been a huge fan of Matt Granny's Life in Hell. Um, right. So, and then, you know, like that, just the legend of the show kept growing. And it was one of the few places where like the writers felt like the stars. And I yeah. read stories about like, not just because of Conan, but about like George Meyer, who had also been at Letterman, Jeff Martin, just countless guys like um, Greg Daniels, like these unbelievable Jennifer Crittenden, just these mm-hmm. superstars, like a murderer's row of great comedy talent. And yeah. it remained my favorite show all the way through the 90s. So joining this team, joining the writing team just felt both like an incredible honor and just the most terrifying thing that could happen to you. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, I reviewed like three episodes that you wrote early on, uh, just to get a sense if there was any sort of like uh, consistency <laughs> between them and everything. And, uh, if there was something that I could come up with that I thought that one thing that comes out now, you said that you write the script and five lines end up in the, in the show. So often. You know, yeah. I yeah, mean, I, so would say, I would say that I, I'm very proud of some of those early shows. Some of those shows seem a little rocky in retrospect to, to <laughs> yeah. put, it, put it, um, mildly. I, I feel like more recent shows might be more indicative of my work and my sensibility. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw this, the recent show where Lisa became obsessed with this Morrissey, like, mopey singer from the 1980s oh yeah that oh. caught some uh, caught some buzz caught a little bit of flack. that yeah. was that was me and, and that was uh <laughs> oh. i spearheaded that effort and really that oh oh definitely. you pissed morrissey off i know i know Good for <laughs> you <laughs> yeah and then you have the smiths in your movie i mean I not really but crazy. like but, that, but that, that to me that seems totally fine because i was and remain an enormous fan of the smiths <laughs> Mm-hmm. Of course, maybe not so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not the only one. That's fu- so funny, too, because there is a, a Smith's joke in this movie, too. Totally. I was Smith's obsessed. I saw, this will tell you how old I am. I went to see them play in Canada in, I want to say, the summer of 1986. And oh, I was wow. not a cool kid, but somehow I ended up at that concert because I had some cool friends who took me. Nice. And I just thought they were great. And I've, mm-hmm. and I've seen... Either the Smiths, I think that was the last time I saw the band, but I saw Morrissey maybe, t- I've seen him like four times since then, most recently mm-hmm. at Hollywood Bowl. And so I feel like I've grown up with that guy. And I, I think he's immensely talented. And I think he may have taken a turn in his personal and political life that is problematic recently. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that the whole point of that story was the, how do you, you know, how do you deal with it when the heroes of your youth sort of like prove themselves to be human? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like I, I to me and maybe this is naive but I just saw that episode as such a love letter to, to Morrissey and the Smiths but he, <laughs> he didn't see it that way yeah. yeah. One thing that I noticed, I don't know if it was you or if it was just uh, the way it happened or anything. It's it seems and maybe it maybe every new writer that comes into the Simpsons is a Simpsons nerd, but you seem like a Simpsons nerd. Uh some of the episodes that you come <laughs> oh, into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, some of the episodes that you write, uh I don't know if this was the first instance of it, but in the in the episode called Saddlesore Galactica um <laughs> yeah the, the, that's where the that's where a uh, comic book nerd comes in and says you know i believe this is the the oh, last yeah, time yeah, they yeah. had the, those the simpsons had uh, a, a horse and it uh you know caused financial troubles and all that and, <laughs> right 
Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and he comes in later, he comes on later again, uh, again, when Marge seems to be having a gambling problem and he's like, I'm, you watching, know, I'm you. watching you. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, uh, and it also seemed like, like the, uh, the alternate cities, uh, around the Simpsons universe showed up a little bit more like Ogdenville gets, right. gets, uh, gets, uh, shouted out a couple yeah. of times, but, uh, but, uh, Skinner sense us no, I did see that one. That one, that one, that one's a, that one's a great one. I do love the Salisbury Galactic. but there's one episode that I was excited to see that you had written and that's the new kids on the black. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one of the weirdest episodes ever, but I, yeah. I, I am pretty fond of that one. Yeah, in um, sync is in there. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was one of the first times we really went for it and wrote like fake pop songs, which mm-hmm. I was really proud of. Um, and then, and I remember, there's a story I tell all the time that Justin Timberlake was not happy about that episode. No, really? Well, because you know it was a pretty lighthearted approach, and we just gave them silly jokes. But like when he came in to record, he was like, "I don't want to say word." And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, why don't you want to say word?" He goes, "It's whack." I was like, all right. And then but I was sort of, I was a new writer, so I was like, please just say it. Please just say it. He's like, I'm not gonna say it. I was like, just say it once. And then he, he kind of sarcastically said, Word. And then I was like, okay, you don't have to say it anymore. But then we got what and then he recorded the rest of the party. It was great. But then as we were editing, we thought, wow, this sounds really funny. And so we started having him say it like multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like six times in the episode. And apparently he wasn't thrilled about that. Oh my God. You're <laughs> pissing off all the musicians. Yeah. With yeah. Your, all your the music. It's true. It is true. Although I still um, am very good friends with uh, Brett McKenzie from flight of the Concords who wrote mm. all of the, the faux Smith songs oh, in so that great. episode. Yeah. He did that such a he did such a good job. Yeah. Such a great guy. Absolutely. That's one of our favorites uh, that him and uh, Jermaine, obviously. Oh, they're incredible. They're, and they're such nice guys, too. I put them in the in that category with like Weird Al, like geniuses who are oh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was actually wondering about the music stuff because, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that the script gets written and then it's like, what, 18 months later, it's an episode. It's something like something that. Something like that. Like, I think it's typically it's 10 to 12 months now. Okay. Yeah. Although um, I think actually it's probably 12, 10 to 12 months from the moment you come up with the idea from the time it's written, probably like six to eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, there, there's one, I think one of your episodes has the Bachman Turner overdrive. Uh, that's the saddle sword Galactica one, which I have to say, like I didn't have total control over that one that I feel like Mike Scully who ran the show and George Meyer, they were so endlessly creative and, and they put in so much crazy stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that episode. I can't take credit yeah. for some of the goofier stuff, but boy, do some of the fans hate that one. People oh, are really? 20 years later, 20, 20 years later, um, uh, people are still throwing it in my face. They're like, you wrote Saddle Sir Galactica. Why should we listen to you for anything? I don't, I don't actually, I, I mean, there's only one thing I would say about that episode is just that it's weird that Bart is the one who gets, uh, <laughs> right. that, uh, 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 feel sorry for the horse. And it's not Lisa, which is the usual thing that you would go for. But like, I, I watched that episode and I was like, this is pretty funny. And, and then I looked at the rating on the IMDb and I was like, Oh, so I don't know. Low. So yeah. subterranean. Yeah. I, uh, what, what's the, what's the, what are the major uh, things that people talk about on that? Well, it gets a little silly. Um, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. at some point there's a, there's an evil layer of underground singing jockeys. Sure. And that's not to everyone's taste. I think it's well, fair to say. Isn't, isn't, 
like some of the best episodes, like a lot of times credited to John Schwartzwelder, who does a lot of that type of he stuff. Does a lot. I mean, he there's a tone to John Schwartzwelder stuff that is totally unique um, mm-hmm. that I would not, you know, I, I wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare compare my work to his. Sure, um, he does a lot of crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> And uh, and God bless him. I don't know if you saw this. The New Yorker did an interview with him, but two or three or they I found mean, him. They found him and they did an interview and it was the most entertaining thing in the world. He's just he's just nuts, but in the most delightful way. Sure. Um, yeah, that's that's what I find weird. Like, yeah, you know, I remember growing up liking just about every Simpsons episode that I ever watched. And then I would I would go to um, the, there was the Simpsons archive. Uh, where they would have people review the episode uh-huh. and everything. And there would be all these people on there. Like, I give it a C plus or I right. give it a B minus or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. really? I laughed my ass off. What is what? Well, the characterizations <laughs> right, aren't, right, aren't yeah. consistent and blah, blah, blah. People really love their character staying the same no matter what. Don't yeah, they? there's certain there's certain bugaboos like there's, you know, characters acting out of character. And I, I get that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of one of the great comforting things of a TV show is that people stay largely the same. But to that, I would just say like people in real life don't stay the same. They do all sorts of crazy shit sometimes. Right. They do. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing that they really hate on our show is this thing called the retconning where you oh, yeah. past. But at, at the same time, I feel like, well, with a show like ours where the, it's such a, there's a paradox, which is that the show, they stay the same age, but the years go by. We do have to sort of change things around a little bit. Like, I do think it's okay that Homer and Marge were in high school in 1974 and 20-something marrieds in 1995. I mean, <laughs> they do that in comic books, though. and Of course. And no one complains about Oh, maybe people do complain about what? that. What? No, nobody that. ever complains about comic books. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm saying, but I mean, they yeah, like all of a sudden, like, you know, Wolverine is, Logan's now like a Vietnam, you know, vet as opposed know, to like a World War II vet. It's fun. Yeah. 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 Is there a, uh, is there a particular challenge now in the, in the Simpsons writing room since you're going into season 33? What is the main thing that you guys like, or is it really just coming up with new stories for the, for the family to show yeah, up? Yeah. I mean, in? I think it's, I, you know, it's not as much of a challenge as people think to come mm-hmm. up with new stories because a, let's face it, we can sort of tread slightly on the same ground before. Like, we are going to do, you know, if we do a home release episode, it's not going to be 100% groundbreaking. Right. But as long as sort of the circumstances are different and it feels like it's not even the details of the stories, it's just sort of the emotional ground. Like, what is the emotion being mined here? Or what? Just as long as there's something different about it, I, we're usually fine. And so, yeah, it is always a challenge to come up with stories that hit that very small target of being funny and emotionally resonant and still Simpsons-y, whatever that mm-hmm. is. So yeah, yeah, it's a challenge, but I, I'm pretty confident we can keep doing it. Well, and there's also, I, I've heard over in some of the commentaries where like, uh, you know, a lot of, some of the funniest stuff gets cut because of uh, time a lot of times, if it's not. Oh, absolutely. You know. And and gradually, for whatever reason, our, the time that we have to play with is getting shorter. I think mm-hmm. every year they, they sell just a few more seconds worth of ads. So I, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure of the numbers but i feel like when the show started we had something like 23 or 24 minutes to play with and now it's we're lucky if we get 20 credits and so that that's that makes it difficult to tell stories and one one um consequence of that is that we tell fewer b stories right 
um, because we just don't have the time. Yeah, I remember uh, that ad things got, and this was years ago because this was when Arrested Development was on Fox. And I remember David Cross telling a story about how they were running an ad at the bottom of the screen over the last like 90 seconds of the episode. Oh, absolutely. It's mad. <laughs> so sort of uh, t- turning your turning uh, uh, back to the movie and everything. Uh, I love, I uh, thank you so much for talking Simpsons with us. Yes. I, I could oh my talk, God. Whenever I could talk, uh, I could talk Simpsons, uh, fill the rest of this hour with it. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, sure. Me too. Um, but, uh, but, uh, how, how close is the town of Hobart to uh, the town that you grew up in? And like, what, what was, I guess every place and I, we were, we were talking to another Canadian filmmaker two or three months ago and I, and I'm sitting there going, really, this happened in Canada. I thought they were way more progressive than us. Uh, and, uh, and so like, uh, I, I, you know, you see stuff of like with, with racism and everything in Canada and I'm like is it's truly everywhere right yeah absolutely i mean i you know canadians flatter themselves that they are more tolerant and and certainly you know the history of racial trouble in the states is better known i mean obviously there was a civil war right um you know there's all sorts of problems you know everywhere and racism doesn't stop at the border like you know there have been horrendous i mean it, it, it takes a different form sometimes like obviously there's you know there are uh black people in Canada. And certainly there's been discrimination there too. But one of the major issues that people are talking about now is uh, native Canadians and how they've been treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was nice to, to see in your movie that you, you've touched on that. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, as a percentage of the population, um, the indigenous population is much larger in Canada uh, and play a larger role in the politics of the country. But also that means that like, you know, there's just been this horrible scandal recently where they've discovered like, unmarked graves of young right. native canadian mm-hmm. children oh that's right that was the, the school right the school it, they had this thing called residential schools and i'm not even 100 percent sure what they were but i guess they were places that um native canadian kids and indigenous kids were shipped against their will and then they frequently ended up dying and being buried in this horrendous manner and it's and i think it's something that is just sort of coming to light now and it's just horrible yeah so you know and i think that i mean canadians many canadians to their credit are saying like, gosh, this is something we really have to deal with. And this is just horrific. And I think, I think it has gone a long way towards erasing the sort of sense of Canadian superiority. Mm-hmm. Like you know, Canadians have always looked at the civil rights struggle and said like, wow, we didn't have yokels like that. We, you know, there was no segregation in Canada, but you know, there was, and it, yeah. and it, it may even be, you know, in many ways it was worse. Right. Uh, you know, and it shows in this movie how quickly people's opinions can turn on a dime when they think something has happened or whatever, or they perceive something has happened. And, you know, they, uh, Stefan comes in as instantly the most popular kid in school. Uh, everybody loves this guy. And then <laughs> suddenly there's like one little thing that happens and suddenly everybody's turned against him and yeah. they, they attribute it to a racial type of thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, all these other people can be the shittiest people that they <laughs> right. want to be. And, uh, and nobody, they never become like outcasts like this uh, and everything. It's, so. it's true. And I, that's one of the reasons I changed the name of the town because, you know, Exeter was, had the same, sweetness but you know like i didn't want to like attribute like a basically <laughs> a xenophobic witch hunt to the actual town that i grew up in because that wouldn't be fair and that didn't happen yeah so um yeah i just like i wanted to like i said the only the only real person who's represented here is me yeah so, um and and that was a compelling story and, and 
but it was nice that, especially in a period movie, to be able to touch on some of these themes that are still resonant today. And they even uh, you even got uh, this is something rare for some indie films. You got some stuff like Sue Studio in this movie, <laughs> right? Got, oh, you know, yeah. I don't quite know how we did that. We have like we have there's a, at least one Smith song in there, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm glad cure we asked. Song? That's crazy. Uh, and we had a, a Cure song. Yeah, there's some there's some good stuff in there. I think for some reason because it was a British co-production, I think that the the rates to use those songs were a little less. Nice. Mm. Everybody knows Robert Smith over there, and they're like, oh, "Can we have <laughs> just like heaven?" Yeah, yeah. Just, just give like us heaven. just like it's heaven. Such it's a good cool. song. Yeah, and it's a great way to start the movie. <laughs> it really is. And, and what is it? It's breakout at the end. The the swing out sister song. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, good, good year. Yeah, yeah. You just I can't. You... I think there's a band called Prefab Sprout in there. Oh um, yeah. Which I remember, but yeah, Breakout by Swing Out Sister. We, um, it's so funny. Uh, I, that song has been sort of lodged in my brain the last year or so because we've been writing it at The Simpsons over Zoom. And whenever, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we split the group and we're like, should we have a breakout room? And everyone goes, breakout. And we all have to sing the breakout song before we get the breakout room. I mean, that's what I was doing after this movie. I couldn't get it out of my head. I know, it's, it's a really catchy song. song. It's just like, it's like, don't start to die. It's it's one of those songs that's so dumb, but it's also kind of really inspiring. You've got to find a way. You've got to play, break yeah. out. And you're like, why is why is why can't I get to sleep? Why won't this song be in my head? Uh, guys, do you have any uh, further questions? Okay, I've got two. Jonathan, I don't know if you've got anything. Yeah, you're good. Go. Okay. One is one is about the movie, and then one is a quick one about something else. Okay. How often were you on set? Uh, as, I was there as the whole a, time. You were okay. So sometimes yeah, the writer to... is is not always there, right? But but yeah. you were heavily involved here. I was heavily involved, and and you know that's a credit to probably Dan Azer because of course the director is ultimately in charge of the movie, and so he could have been like, "Get the hell off my movie set." Yeah. But you know, partly because it was a personal story, and partly because he wanted me there, it was he really just said, "Great, anything you can contribute." And also, you know, because it was his Dan Mazur comes from the Sasha Baron Cohen Borat school where you're mm. creating comedy on the fly. So, you know, he he likes to shoot the movie, like shoot the script as it's been written. And then after a few takes, say, Tim, you want to change any lines? Mm. And I'll be like, sure. Why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? And so sometimes the camera is still rolling and you can shout out a line and the, and the actor will redo it. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. <laughs> so you were really, really awesome. immersed. So he, was, he could not have been more encouraging. For me wow. to do that and i felt you know i felt really lucky yeah. uh, in a million different ways but yeah i i was totally embraced on the set so when you're on a, a marvel film the next time you're going to be very very disappointed right? <laughs> oh, <I totally laughs> like those guys i actually know a couple of those guys um chris and steven who who've written all the avengers movies and i feel like they're on set all the time too because really? i think they're cross, i think they're constantly rewriting no yeah, kidding. Wow, I would yeah. not have realized that. I figured- and then, of course, they have to please, like, you know, they have to, yeah, they've told me stories. I don't know them really well, but I've heard them tell stories about going into, like, Robert Downey Jr.'s trailer and pitching a line, and then if he approves it, they have to go to the director. And Oh, uh, so, yeah, they're on set, but they have to go through 50 different people yeah. to get their yeah. show. <laughs> I mean, those things, those, like, those are the Avengers, you know, as the writer, you're like, you don't have that much power, I think. Yeah, but like, you know, there's a couple of those scripts are very complicated. And, and I think oh, that yeah. they and they spend time, you know, like 
it is I, they're not really my cup of tea they're not the movies i go to as a first choice but like you got to respect right. those events like how many storylines are going at the same time 17 no, it's yeah. insane they're juggling oh so many characters and they do it skillfully and in a way that makes a billion dollars like mad mm-hmm. respect to those guys and, and the stories have to sort of make sense and you know they have to write quips everyone's quipping all the time that's right so yeah. those, those, are, those are complicated enterprise so yeah more power to them I'm, totally. I could talk to you forever. Okay, last one. Delaney, <laughs> okay. please don't get mad at me if we go a little bit over. Uh, I got to ask you about Letterman. Now, yep. you, you, were, you were writing in what I consider kind of the, 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 the meat of uh, his late show career, yep. right? In the mid-90s to, to late 90s. Uh, of course, he had the NBC show, NBC show before. Uh, can you tell me a little bit without getting anyone in trouble what the cultural what the culture was like there like how much did you interact uh with the guests with uh, the pre-film segments with the, the monologue with dave himself like how, what what was that working culture like if you can well, summarize in 30 seconds guys, and i'm afraid i have to stop talking now yeah. um, <laughs> no i'm kidding it was it was good i mean i feel like listen with those shows there is a certain tension in the air mm-hmm. all yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Just kind of, that was kind of his thing, right? It was, a, you know, he was not like the chillest guy in the world, I would say. Unbelievably <laughs> funny, but not the chillest. Right. And also the pressure of putting on a show every night, it'll get to even the most, uh, the coolest customer. True. Um, mm-hmm. And none of us were really the coolest customers. So <laughs> yeah. let, me just, let me just say that uh, it was a great experience and it was also a great experience leaving. I got you. I got you. Were you <laughs> in New York that whole time? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I lived there. I lived in New York. I moved. I was went to the University of Toronto, and I lived in New York from like, I want to say ninety two to ninety eight. Man, I tell you what, writing a a daily a nightly show. I don't like, know how they uh, do it. I would I would die. I, I you hear Stephen Colbert talk about you sort of allude to this a lot in in his own shows, just how uh crazy it is sometimes. Like they'll change a joke like you know five minutes. Oh, a thousand times, a million times, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and then you know you're you're constantly just looking for material, and then you have to write mm-hmm. the material and all this all day and it's, everything. Uh, and then, it'll it'll wear you down. Meryl yeah. Marco, who, who was the first head writer of the Letterman Show back at NBC, her famous line was, "Writing a nightly comedy show is like chasing a truck downhill. You just have to know <laughs> you'll never you'll never catch it." <laughs> that sounds exactly right. Oh man. Uh, uh, so Jonathan Barrett, any anything else before well, I, we? I, I just there's so many so many funny scenes in this movie. One of my favorite, by the way, you were talking about Paul Bronstein earlier and the selling the tractors. The 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 guy coming in, who's like life is falling apart, and he's got to uh-huh. he's got to return the tractor or the truck or whatever. Right. And just everything about that scene was amazing. I love scenes like that. We ne- we we worked on that scene a lot. Yeah. I like I like comedy combined with misery. Yeah, um, and that oh, guy that oh, guy yeah. just had an amazing ability to just convey just a light, a guy who's quietly losing his entire life. And he also drove the tractor. He was the guy yeah. who, when, when you see the tractor nice. pull up outside of the, uh, outside of the store, that's him. So he was a double threat. But the, everybody's sort of uh, trying the, uh, how to win friends and influence people. Yes, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that resonated. I love, I used to, I, I, my dad had a lot of those books on our bookshelf. So I used to read like how to read a person like a book. Yeah. A, you know, there was a lot of Dale Carnegie that I read and, and it, it worked for my dad. It never worked for me. And I yeah. definitely don't want to give away too much, but the, the cow scene, um, oh, yeah. just 
that that had me dying. And a lot of it had to do with it's one of those moments I feel like it would have been it, in some movies we've seen it be bigger, but I liked how it was, I guess, a little more subtle. <laughs> we tried, you know, we tried not to get too silly, but you yeah, know, if when, when we wanted to go for the hard laugh, we were we wouldn't hesitate. Oh man, it was so great. I, yeah, I, I, I really, I really did. I genuinely, I just, I laughed a lot during this. Oh, movie. I'm so glad. I'm so yeah. glad. I'm hoping that uh, other people will have the same experience. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, the movie is the exchange. Um, it uh, comes out July 30th. Uh, theaters, VOD, and digital. Um, uh, we'd like to thank uh, Tim Long for uh, giving us his time. Uh, thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, guys. I can't wait to hear the podcast and hear what a dork I sound like. <laughs> you sound we, exactly we you. like every Simpsons writer I've ever heard on commentaries. <laughs> okay, we we, got, you, we like... got you singing, too. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, also, do you want me to sing you out? No. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. I'm not um, just say word. <laughs> word. Yeah. Word. Um, all right. Uh, that's going to do it for this interview. It's Chris Atkins and Barrett Sharon, Jonathan Watkins. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.